0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpare, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am very pleased to welcome Frank Baumgartner, who is the co-author with Derek A. Epp and Kelsey Schube of Suspect Citizens, What 20 Million Traffic Stops Tell Us About Policing and Race, which is brand new from Cambridge University Press. Uh, Frank, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, so before we talk about this particular book, why don't you uh, inform our listeners, for those who may not know, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that brought you to this particular project.
1: Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I've been a professor of political science here at UNC Chapel Hill since 2009, and uh, previously I, I taught at Penn State and before that at Texas A&M, and I got my PhD over 30 years ago now from uh, the University of Michigan. And I have done a lot of research over the years on uh, public policy, agenda setting, punctuated equilibrium theories. And I still am very active in the policy agendas project, which is now a comparative uh, project where we've got teams in over 20 countries working on agenda setting research. But in the last um, several, oh, about the last decade, I've been, well, actually since about 2000, almost two decades now, Uh, I've been involved also in studies of criminal justice and uh, the death penalty, and then when you get involved in criminal justice studies, you end up inevitably uh, becoming interested in uh, race and gender dynamics, and so that's how I ended up on this uh, uh, long study of uh, traffic stops, of all things.
0: Um, So why don't we... Maybe start by talking a little bit just about the relevant case law here. The last week was the 50th anniversary of Terry v. Ohio. Um, and maybe uh, talk to a little bit about that case and uh, maybe REN v. U.S., the two that, that that sort of govern practice in the area. And then we'll talk a little bit about, about where your data comes from and what you found.
1: Sure. Well, um, these two decisions that you're right to mention really have changed uh, the the nature of policing and uh, given an open uh, season for the police to um, investigate individuals either walking down the street or certainly driving a car uh, if the police officer in their sole discretion believes that there's any reason why there might be an interest in uh, investigating a, a, a person. And I um, the office, the, essentially what the court has said is that any momentary inconvenience for the citizen and being subjected to questioning or even a, potentially a search if there's probable cause or if the person gives their consent is just that. It's a momentary inconvenience and it has no constitutional import. Um, so I think that's quite accurate for somebody like me, who's a middle-class white male college professor. The police don't find me very interesting and so yeah. I have had you know, interactions with police officers, but they've always been very gracious and uh, respectful. And um, I think uh, one time when I was 17 years old, I crossed the border into Canada and the, the immigration person wanted to search the car because I was with another 17-year-old buddy from high school and they just felt like 17-year-olds traveling by themselves, there must be something there. <laughs> So I think we were profiled as young teenagers. But that's the last time any police officer has ever been interested in searching my car or anything like that. And these, of course, were border patrol agents, not police officers. And it was in another country. So I've never had my car searched by an American police officer. And the last time I was pulled over was over 30 years ago. Uh, So if you're like me, I think the Supreme Court justices um, really are... um, the, their, their intuition is pretty accurate that this might happen once every 10 years or it would be a rare occasion that an officer might detain somebody momentarily for some questioning. Uh, but if you're like Philando Castile or if you're a young African-American or Latino uh, male, Uh, You might not find it only to be once every 10 years for some momentary questioning. You might find it to be routine, quite humiliating, frustrating, and maddening that you might routinely be pulled over and uh, asked to show your papers or asked to open the trunk of your car and open up your pockets and uh, let the officer look in the back seat of your car for whatever the officer might be looking for.
0: And you know if they if they if an officer is looking for uh, a pretext for a traffic stop, given the nature of traffic laws, it's we are all violating the law all the time, correct? Either you're speeding or you're
1: obstructing traffic. Those are the two options. Yeah. And uh, so there was a, a a state, let's see, a, a county sheriff in uh, Florida who had some jurisdiction over a certain uh, area on I-95 outside of Daytona, Florida, back in the 70s, who realized that he, um, he was interested in uh, searching people's vehicles for the possibility of finding people transporting drugs. And he kept getting his uh, searches thrown out in the courts because he was basically just profiling people based on their race. And so he decided that he really needed to study the traffic code. And what he discovered in studying the highway code and the vehicle code was that between the vehicle code, which indicates that, you know, you can't drive your car with a broken taillight or you can't have, a, you know, no headlights at night. You have to have certain safety features on your car. And then the the traffic code, which suggests, you know, obviously you can't speed and you can't swerve as you drive down the highway, between the two of them, those two sets of codes uh, provide hundreds of reasons for an officer to pull somebody over for the violation of some um, some law. And so once a person is in violation of the law, then they are indeed open to police investigation. So that's the that's the opening that the court has uh, consistently uh, allowed that pretty much anybody driving a vehicle is open to police investigation at the sole discretion of the officer.
0: So as the subtitle of your book says, you looked at some 20 million uh, of these traffic stops from 2002 to 2016. Uh, I guess the the first question is, how on earth did you get that kind of data? And you're looking at just North Carolina. What is it that made this study possible in the first place?
1: Yeah, what what made the study possible was a, a groundswell of attention to the concept or the the phenomenon of so-called driving while black, which came in the late 1990s. And as a student of agenda setting, I was actually thinking about writing a book about driving while black uh, back then, around the year 2000, because there was so much attention to this uh, this concern. I remember Cornell West, the well-known professor of uh, religion and theology at Princeton. Uh, was was commuting between his two positions for a time at Princeton and Harvard. You know, the poor guy couldn't get a decent job. But anyway, (laughs) he uh, was driving up I-95 between Princeton, New Jersey and Cambridge, Massachusetts, and routinely got pulled over. And this became newsworthy. And it was emblematic of some things that have been going on on the highways for, of course, I think since there's been highways, or at least since there's been black and Hispanic drivers. So, the North Carolina uh, legislature uh, has a substantial black caucus and did even at that time. And our legislature was the first in the country to mandate the collection of traffic stops data based on uh, a mobilization that was a nationwide mobilization as well. The congressional black caucus was very concerned about it. And there was legislation in many states. But anyway, North Carolina was the first state in the country to mandate data collection, that was in 1999, the data were collected starting in 2000 for the highway patrol, and then in 2002, the mandate was expanded to uh, virtually every uh, sizable police department uh, in the state of North Carolina. So we've been, the state's been collecting the data, and the law mandates that the attorney general... um, issue periodic reports to evaluate whether there might be any signs of uh, racial uh, disparities. Um, But the attorney general has never issued a single report. So I was asked around uh, five, six years ago to participate in a task force. And um, the leaders of the task force gave me a CD that had all this data and so i said oh my goodness so how am i gonna possibly get my hands around this because it was quite a complicated data set but it was a gold mine of data and we we were finally able to um, figure out how to analyze it we had to use the unc supercomputers and merge eight different databases together because it's a complicated multi-level database but um, now we've done it, and uh, our book shows some really dramatic, consistent disparities, just like one might imagine, um, but we put numbers to it, and so I think that's an important thing to do.
0: Um, I do, too. Uh, so why don't, why don't we pick up on your segue, and once you start talking to us a little bit about what it is that you and your team did find?
1: Well, the first thing we looked at is who gets pulled over. And the big danger in looking at who gets pulled over is that one doesn't have very strong estimates of who's out on the road driving. Because, just because, uh, for example, North Carolina has about 20% African-American population, uh, but, you know, black and white drivers or individuals might not drive at the same rates or drive the same distances, et cetera. So it's always difficult to... uh, deal with what we call the baseline problem. Uh, but we nonetheless were able to show that consistently in every municipality and the police jurisdiction across the state, black drivers are much more likely to be pulled over. they are a higher share of those pulled over than they are a share in the population. This is actually an underestimate of the degree of disparity because a national statistics show consistently that white Americans are more likely to own a car and to drive greater distances than black or Hispanics. But anyway, we don't put too much emphasis on the who gets pulled over side of the analysis, but uh, we do indicate that it, it appears that um, black drivers are almost are approximately twice as likely to be pulled over than white Americans the white North Carolinians. But the main emphasis that we uh, put in the book is on an analysis of uh, once you do get pulled over, what's the outcome of the stop? And in particular, what's the odds that the officer is going to want to search your car? And there we show that uh, African-American drivers, like Hispanic drivers, are about twice as likely to see their car searched as compared to white drivers. So the yeah the 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 the, the, um, the disparities are particularly high among male drivers as compared to females, and then young males are much more likely to see their car searched as compared to any other people. But young males of color uh, have quite extraordinary rates of search.
0: And you don't find any differences in uh, criminality to account for at least the, the differential in who gets pulled over, correct?
1: The um, it, we have uh, data in the data set about whether the search led to the discovery of contraband. Yeah. And uh, this is really an interesting thing because this is the entire justification for the use of the traffic code to fight the war on crime is that uh, officers might do tens of thousands of traffic stops and searches uh, and then maybe every once in a while they would, they would interject a, a major drug shipment or they would find a drug courier or what we used to call a drug kingpin. Um, and the numbers show that those things are just vanishingly rare. So it's uh, very unusual that anything more than a trivial amount of contraband should be found. Uh, and we document a few cases even in the book where large amounts were indeed found uh, but the defense attorneys for those individuals who might be found, and we found three cases where there were actually large amounts of cocaine or methamphetamines found in a traffic stop, a uh, search following a traffic stop. And then the attorneys subpoenaed the records from the officers involved, and they found that those officers had routinely uh, searched uh, only Hispanic or African-American drivers letting all the white drivers go or not even stopping white drivers and so those uh, rare cases where the large uh, drug caches were discovered through a traffic stop were actually thrown out in some instances because of the violation of the constitutional right to privacy for so many thousands of other drivers. Uh, that have been caught up in these essentially uh, racial profiling dragnets that, you know, were unfortunately discovered in a few instances. We don't think that that's very common, but we do uh, show that there's really not very much public safety value in using the traffic code to investigate individuals. People just don't transport that much drugs in their cars. Yeah.
0: So... So we see these uh, racial disparities at the individual level in terms of who gets pulled over and, and learn that, that it doesn't actually result in, in, um, in at least what the stated aim of the policy is. You also find that there are some interesting kinds of patterns at the community level. Can you talk about that for a little bit?
1: Yeah, of course, we have data uh, for the entire state of North Carolina. And uh, this, like other states, there's uh, essentially three types, three major types of police agencies. The biggest agency is the state highway patrol. And of course, they, they monitor the entire, they cover the entire state and with a focus on the major highways. Then there's police departments in the municipalities and then sheriff's departments who uh, patrol areas Typically outside the jurisdiction of a of a police department, so we can compare the different sheriff's departments and then the various police departments in in um, these different municipalities, and then compare the characteristics of the communities with the racial disparities that we discover in the uh, traffic stops and the the likelihood of search. And what we find is that when we build an index of Uh, African-American political power. So that is when we compare those communities where African-Americans represent a very small share of the population, they're not a large share of the voting population, and they have no seats on the local city council, and we compare those communities to communities of which there are several in North Carolina where it's a majority African-American town and most of the voters are black. And a large share of the city council might be African-American council people. When we compare those, we find that the, uh, the black political power is a significant predictor of reducing racial disparities. So racial disparities almost, uh, are reduced to almost zero, no disparity at all in those communities with the highest degree of black political power.
0: So is it, is it too much, you think, to say that law enforcement agencies uh, discriminate against young men of color in places where they can get away with it?
1: Well, I hesitate to use the word discriminate, but I would use the word target. And I think the data are consistent with uh, the idea that uh, if there's impunity, uh, if there's a small minority population uh, that has no political voice, there's really no mechanism uh, through the democratic account, there's no democratic accountability mechanism that would reign in a police department that was doing that. Whereas in a community where there's a, a black mayor, several black city council members, if there's allegations or an observation that the police are unfairly or inappropriately targeting uh, black drivers as compared to white drivers or Latino drivers, Um, then, yeah, there's going to be some feedback that's going to get to the level of the police chief and the police chief is going to be asked to uh, explain or change that behavior. And so indeed, we find that there's no there's there's no increase in the search rate for black drivers in towns with high black political power, but they can be three to one disparities on average in towns with very low levels of black political power, which is a lot of North Carolina. And I think nationally, we would see something similar to this.
0: You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper host of the Public Policy Channel. And we're speaking with Frank Baumgartner, who is co-author of Suspect Citizens, What 20 Million Traffic Stops Tell Us About Policing and Race. <laughs> Um, so, so, so Frank. Earlier in the conversation, you made reference to uh, the Supreme Court suggesting that uh, that these kind of, that, that that the traffic stops that we're talking about are at most an uh, that they're an inconvenience and that there are not. Uh, sort of appreciable costs associated with this behavior. But one of the other things that you do discover uh, is that there are costs associated with traffic stops. Can you talk a little bit about about what you talk about in terms of the social and community effects?
1: Well, um, yeah, thanks for asking about that. I think we really have to close what i would call the empathy gap the empathy gap is the idea that as a middle-class white american or um uh, for me uh, you know middle-aged um also white american my experiences with the police are really quite congenial they're very rare and they're very respectful but in cases where you know, when uh, in other communities or in people who don't look like me or young men of color in particular, uh, and especially in lower income, potentially higher crime areas of town or in those towns with higher uh, amounts of crime, the police behave in a very different way. And this is uh, essentially hidden from view because of geographical differences. Policing is really about place as, it, as much as it is about people. And so in the, on the nice side of town, the police behave in one way, and then on the, on the other side of town, they might be very aggressive in a way that would be quite shocking if it ever applied to middle-class whites. And so I think we, we, we live in communities where we're not aware of how different the policing is on the other side of town or for people who look uh, differently. And so I call that the empathy gap. And I think that uh, we really have to address it uh, nationally uh, because people just aren't aware. White middle class people are simply unaware of what might happen if uh, they they, uh, had a different identity. So anyway, the police behave very differently and naturally one finds that there's a a crisis of um, confidence in the police a degree of distrust of the police that is unimaginable in the white middle class community but which is quite um, widespread in communities of color and in communities um, where there's higher degrees of crime and neighborhoods with higher degrees of crime and this is particularly uh, tragic because it's in the communities with a higher degree of crime where we really need our community members to believe that the police are helping rather than hindering, um, you know, the search for public safety in their communities. And, uh, increasingly it's, it's clear that many people don't trust the police. And I think, uh, the routine traffic stop is, uh, just one of many ways in which people interact with the police, but it's the most common way that Americans interact with the police. And if it's, uh, You know, if you're pulled over because you were going 85 miles an hour in a 55-mile zone, you know that you were breaking the law, it was dangerous, you may be unhappy that you got caught, but you shouldn't feel that there was an unjust outcome. Furthermore, it's very unlikely that you'll be searched. You'll simply be given a ticket, maybe a stern talking to, and then you'll be sent on your way. But if you're um, parked outside your kid's school waiting to pick up your child um, and it just so happens that you're poor, you're a minority, maybe you've got dreadlocks and um, it's uh, what, what the police might refer to as a high crime area, but it happens to be where you live and the police pull you over uh, for some reason that you know is a pretext Uh, And all you're doing is trying to, you know, get through the day and get your kid home from school safely. That's going to be quite frustrating. And so you're going to look at the police in a different manner. And you might develop some uh, hostility towards the police because um, they're treating you in a way that 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 um, makes you understand that from their perspective, you're a suspect before you're a citizen. And so that attack on your sense of full citizenship is, uh, I think, really, it tears at the heart of the fabric of democracy. And uh, it's really um, something that we need to deal with.
0: This also, I mean, this links into to research going at least as far back as Joe Soss documenting the ways in which our interaction with public institutions affects uh, our sense of who we are as citizens, but also our willingness to participate in civic life and important uh, institutions of governance, including voting behavior. So this has some, some really quite possibly profound consequences.
1: I think that the, the, the routine traffic stop is, is so common. I mean, we have uh, over a million traffic stops in North Carolina per year and a population of about 10 million. So clearly it, it's happening, you know, to 10 percent of the population on an annual basis. And that's uh, uh, sometimes higher than that. And in certain communities, it's probably happening on a monthly basis um, for certain people with certain identities, young young men of color. Uh, so. um yeah, that could be very, very debilitating, and it could explain why people might grow up um, you know, with an expectation that they're not going to vote, they're going to be uh, relatively alienated from government, they're not going to turn to the police when they might need help. As a matter of fact, in, in the worst cases, they would avoid the police even when they do need help, uh, because uh, the police have sent signals to them since they were 16 years old and started driving that um, they're not on their side. Now, I don't want to sound too pessimistic. I mean, we have also examples documented in the book where in the face of um, uh, community concern and large um, significant controversies about uh, allegations of racial profiling, uh, for example, we saw it in uh, the city of Fayetteville, North Carolina, around 2012, A new police chief came in and he dramatically shifted the orientation of the police officers away from um, what you might call pretextual traffic stops to traffic stops that were really focused only on public safety. That is egregious speeding, blowing through stop signs, drunk driving, things that really are dangerous on the road. And with the police focusing on those traffic safety stops, rather than things like expired registration tags or cracked taillights or minor equipment problems, uh, the racial disparities were reduced. And also we found in Fayetteville and we document in the book an increase in calls to nine one one, even though there was a decrease in uh, the amount of crime. So the community, the better uh, relations with uh, the African-American community led to a greater degree of cooperation and calling out for the police to help, uh, which is exactly what I think everybody should want. So I think those reforms can enhance public safety by enhancing community trust in the police and by reducing um, these pretextual stops. We also enhance our democracy by making people feel like they're full citizens.
0: Is there anything else that you and your team would, would recommend by way of reforms what, what we can do to remedy this problem?
1: I, I would like to uh, see uh, police uh, departments uh, think about the effectiveness, uh, the cost, as well as the effectiveness, the cost and the benefit of uh, routine interactions with uh, individuals, especially in our, in our in our most distressed communities, the communities that have the greatest degree of crime. Uh, still, most of the people who live in those communities, even if they're crime-ridden communities, are not criminals. They simply uh, live there. And they're suffering from the impact of those uh, individuals who might be engaged in crime but they're not themselves uh, criminals. And so to treat everybody with a broad brush uh, is really caustic to those individuals' sense of fairness. It makes them uh, believe that they're seen as suspects by the government, and naturally it has a really bad impact on them. So I think we really wanna ask ourselves as as a nation whether those policies are worth it in terms of public safety. And our results suggest that not only are they uh, very unhelpful in terms of public safety, but by pulling back from these aggressive and really not very useful uh, police practices, we not only enhance people's sense of citizenship, but then because of that, we enhance their willingness to cooperate with the police to fight crime. And so I think we all come out winners if we rethink some of these accepted truths in the modern policing, such as being really aggressive uh, towards everybody in areas of high crime.
0: You've been listening to Frank Baumgartner, who is a co-author with Derek Ayatt and Kelsey Hube of Suspect Citizens, What 20 million traffic stops tell us about policing and raised new from Cambridge University Press. Uh, so Frank, what are you working on now? Well, actually, I'm uh, following
1: up on a number of uh, projects relating to traffic stops going uh, n- nationally as to the extent that there's uh, data available, and then I'm working on a new book about the death penalty here in North Carolina and on a database about the use of the death penalty nationally. Uh, so I'm following up on some criminal justice uh, work, and then, of course, I have uh, further research coming out of the policy agendas project that will continue to to flow like a river
0: <laughs> uh and with thank excuse me and with that uh frank thank you so much for joining us
1: today thanks steven it's been really nice to talk with you